I'm Chris Melander. I want to tell you a story today about how a five foot two guard beat LeBron James, at least metaphorically speaking. Before I do, I want to tell you a little bit about who this masterclass is for. And it's really for CEOs and executive leaders that are focused on finding an edge for their uh, companies, their enterprises. They're looking for an idea, a concept, a strategy, a method, which allows them to unlock new potential, new energy in that organization and take it to a new level of comp- competition. Secondly, I want to be able to draw from a range of different contexts, situational contexts. It doesn't have to be just business. Today, we're going to talk about the U.S. Navy and specifically nuclear submarines. And the reason is because it allows us the opportunity to see critical decision-making at work and then be able to extrapolate the lessons to our own context. We learn best from taking a little bit of a lot of different places and then learning from those events and what went well and, and what didn't. So here's the story. A friend of mine is a former nuclear sub commander. He was the commander of the USS Guardfish, Ted Hack. He was based in the Pacific Theater and he spent his career with nuclear submarines. He had received orders that he was to track a new Soviet sub that had come into the water and would be proceeding through the Sea of Japan towards Vladivostok. It's an interesting background to this story. And it's really important to understanding some of the lessons that I want to take away uh, with you for, for this exercise. And it starts here, which is that the Soviets had always had submarines that were quite large, but they were noisy. Strength was their, their uh, asset in terms of the, the, the capabilities, the mechanical capabilities of their submarines, but they were very noisy. And so the strategy for the Americans was relatively straightforward, which is that they could hear them from a long distance. So we were able to monitor the seas from a, a significant distance with our own submarines, as well as by having listening posts that lay on the seabed at key gateways through major um, uh, gateways in the oceans. Those gateways, those listening outposts, however, an American spy that was working for the Soviets revealed them to the Soviets. And so, of course, they um, were ripped out, second, first of all. And then second of all, the Soviets had done something else, which is that they went and bought technology, uh, which allowed them to make a much quieter turbine and much quieter craft. We, through our own spies, learned that a new submarine was going to be coming to the water. It was going to, the Americans named it the Akula or Shark. Uh, the Soviets called it something else. But that the, the experts believed that it would take them 10 years to bring that new submarine to the water. It took three. And the reason that we knew this is because we had so, uh, satellites uh, that were uh, passing over the Soviet Union. And there was a shipbuilding station that was deep inland in western or in eastern Soviet Union, that, uh, in a city that wasn't even on the maps of the Soviet Union for the first forty or fifty years of its existence. It was a place. It was a base, essentially a, a penal colony that was forced labor um, following World War II of foreigners as well as Russians who had been taken POW uh, during the war and were not trusted under the Stalin regime. They built the ship, the submarines there. We saw activity outside the shipbuilding station uh, in the spring of 1985. There was activity uh, outside. They were preparing the the dock for something that was about ready to happen. The ice was melting 
logs were starting to float down the river. This was a, a, a logging area and the mills were downstream. So one of the first preparations when the submarine uh, was brought outside was to outfit it with inflatable buoys all the way around so that the logs could not damage it on its float to sea. It's an interesting strategy. It's the equivalent of building a submarine in central Arkansas and then moving it out uh, along the river into the Mississippi River, down through Louisiana, down through New Orleans, and then out into the Gulf of Mexico. What happened was that Ted Hack was positioned in the Sea of Japan, essentially the Gulf of Mexico, waiting for that ship, that submarine to, uh, to enter into the deeper waters. Along the way, it would follow the coast of the Soviet Union fairly closely down into Vladivostok where it would be outfitted with additional equipment and then put to sea trials. Sea trials are where they uh, test all the systems of the boat, um, making sure that they can make oxygen, making sure that the water works, making sure that the nuclear uh, plant is functional and safe. They will test it uh, and the men who are new to the ship. It's Everything is a new layout, new arrays, new equipment, new commands. And so you have a high stress environment for those crews. What happened is they brought them out for sea trial and Ted Hack was waiting and he got in tight. The American strategy had shifted. They would now, instead of patrolling the seas from a long range and, and, and spying on the Soviet submarines from a distance, had to get in tight. One of the admirals described it to Congress in a hearing that they would have to get inside their knickers and the Soviets didn't like it, but it was the strategy at the time. So Ted Hack and USS Guardfish, five foot two equivalent, to LeBron James, this large Akula craft would get in very tight. To give you a sense of scale, the Akula craft, if you put it into an NFL football stadium, would extend beyond both goalposts. It was longer than 120 yards. It would cover both the hash marks. The USS Guardfish was about 65 to 70% of that same size. It was small. He got in tight. He had, a per, he had worked with his crew to make that decision. It was his decision to go. He was able to get within 20 meters of the Akula and, in fact, discovered that there were two. He photoed, photographed, and videotaped the entirety of the new technology that was brought to the ocean. There are a myriad of lessons to learn from this nuclear submarine warfare and this event, which was classified for many, many years that we can take. First of all, look for environments in which the strategy is shifting. Something is at play. We want to look for those particular moments. Secondly, intelligence gathering is key. Regardless of your environment, understand how that situation is shifting and identify the information that you need to make good decisions of your own. Secondly, thirdly, look for stressful environments. Look for those environments in which your competition will be under pressure, noise, confusion, this is when mistakes are made. Target their decision-making. You need to understand what they do well, but also what they don't do well. This is how small players beat large players. This is asymmetric warfare. This creates an advantage by targeting their decision-making. Fifth, these moments are fleeting. You are not able to take advantage of these types of opportunities unless you have prepared for it. You have to game plan. You have to build a playbook. You have to train the team. You have to have a high learning. You need to be high up on your learning curve in order to go after them. And finally, 
use decision-making as your tool. Use it as your weapon. Strengthen your own and look for the weaknesses of your competition. And that's your assignment for today, which is think about your largest competition, your LeBron James, and what they will not do well from a decision-making perspective. What are their blind spots? What are their biases? And what they, what they cannot do or say or think or perceive? That's where you want to attack. If you have time, how will they attack you? That's it for now. I'll talk to you soon.